Shalom there, listeners of the Forecast Fest. Harry Enten here, standing alone in a recording booth early on Thursday morning here on the East Coast. I'm here because it was announced late yesterday after we taped the pod that New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand is ending her bid and dropping out of the 2020 presidential race. That now brings the Democratic field down to 20. If you're curious, President Trump responded by tweeting, quote, A sad day for the Democrats. Kirsten Gillibrand has dropped out of the presidential primary. I'm glad they never found out that she was the one I was really afraid of. If you want to hear my thoughts on this latest news, you'll have to wait until tomorrow for a mini episode to drop. But for now, sit back and enjoy the episode we recorded earlier on Wednesday as originally scheduled. Shalom, everyone, and welcome to the Forecast Fest. As you can probably tell, I am not Kate Baudouin, or Kate Baldwin, as she often goes by. Kate is off this week. I am, of course, Harry Enten, and I'm here with my colleague, John Avlon. Hola. And joining us on the pod today, we have a very special guest. She's the host of Firing Line on PBS, a CNN contributor, and coincidentally, John's better half. It's Margaret Hoover. Margaret, welcome to the Forecast Fest. Thank you for having me. I am also a colleague of yours as a CNN contributor. Yeah. That, that is true. That is true. This week, we're going to talk about a recent poll that found there's no clear front runner in the race for the 2020 Democratic nomination. Then we'll spend some time looking at the GOP primary field. And finally, we'll see which top Democratic contenders might have a home state advantage. But first, as always, we do the forecast. And for today's forecast, we're going to look at a recent poll out of Monmouth University. And I get, just got to throw to myself. Isn't that great, everyone? That's it. It was so seamless. It was so seamless. And I'll just sit here and hold Margaret's hand while that, you talk. That's beautiful. Isn't that nice? Love. The forecast fest He actually style. is holding my hand. It's Aww. very sweet. Okay. So now so, we, we so, feel very loving as we listen to Harry Anton. So basically, as you know, there was this Monmouth University poll that came out earlier this week of the Democratic primary race, which showed that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren were tied at 20 percent, leading the Democratic field just behind was Joe Biden at 19 percent. And if you, of course, are a member of the CNN family, we played this poll endlessly on our air. And of as did others, as did others, as did others, because the horse race, Harry, it's horse racing season. It's horse racing season up in Saratoga. I've heard good things. I'm more of a Belmont guy myself. But this to me was such an interesting poll, right? Because Monmouth is a, you know, top crew organization. I love Patrick Murray, who does that poll. But outliers do exist. There are margins of error. The margin of error in this poll was plus or minus six points. If you take into account the design effect possibility of an error, it goes to plus or minus seven point. And even so, margins of error only cover 19 out of 20 cases. One out of 20 times, it's outside the margin of error. And this, to me, seemed like and, one and of those And what about cases. the sample size? Yeah, so the sample size was 298, which was a little it's bit a under. It's it, a very small poll. It is a small sample size. And we have seen oftentimes, if you watch the New York Times ex, uh, experiment last year, that you can see major changes in the horse race when you go from, say, 300 to 500 folks. Right. And we did, in fact, see that, right? We saw a Quinnipiac University poll released on Wednesday that had Joe Biden leading the pack with 32 percent, Elizabeth Warren back in second place at 19 percent. And there's also a Suffolk University poll that had Biden leading the field And they at 32%. were all of larger sample size, 500, they, 600? They were all of larger sample sizes, 400 and plus. Uh, but I, I think the key thing here, right, folks, is that we want to aggregate the polls when we have a lot of them. This is a point that you make all the time, which is you want to look at the overall trend. And if you've got one that's dramatically different and you do two days of breathless coverage about how it's now a horse race and Joe Biden is behind Elizabeth Warren, um, 
Yeah, it, it, it needs to be treated as an outlier from jump. If it's an outlier, does it then even make sense to jumble in and put in with all the polls? I mean, if not even just if it's an outlier. I mean, if it's 290 sample size, does that make it a valid enough poll to throw in with the rest? Yeah, I think that's a great question. What I appreciate is actually when pollsters publish outliers, because sometimes the outlier is actually the correct truth. But more than that, we know from the past that averages actually become more accurate when you include the outliers because, you know, you just get a different sort of look at the electorate. And sometimes there may be the outlier that has Joe Biden down at 19 percent. It was also plausible that you might have had the Joe Biden outlier that had him at, say, 42 percent in the field. So I, I just thought it was just a really interesting sort of example of how the press, though, kind of went with this poll, the need to almost change the race because the race has been so consistent so far. Right. And, right. And, and I do think you can't underestimate sort of that that narrative impulse. And also it became sort of a metaphor for the fact that Elizabeth Warren had a very strong week on the ground. We'll get to that. But that it sort of validated that change in momentum that a lot of folks are seeing on the ground in states. Yeah. Let, let's talk about that. Right. Let's let's talk about Warren's crowd size. She had a crowd size of 15,000 in uh, Seattle. A lot of press was about that. And I think it's just interesting because, you know, Obama had large crowd sizes in 2008, Trump in 2016, so did Bernie in 2016. And Romney, you may recall in the lead up to the 2012 election in Pennsylvania, the crowds are so large, right? Do you remember that, yeah. Margaret? I, I do remember it. But it, it, here's what's interesting. As you read the TikTok on what the crowd sizes are in the recent history, apparently Bernie also in 2015 went to Seattle and had, wait for it, 15,000 people at his crowd. So maybe there are just 15,000 progressive liberals in Seattle <laughs> maybe that Seattle's show up every time one of them comes. No, look, I mean, famously, uh, crowd size can be make candidates feel good at this stage if you're organically pulling out big crowds. It is a good sign. But, you know, I, I remember in, in What It Takes, the great book by Richard Ben Kramer. I mean, Dukakis feeling really good about enormous uh, crowd sizes in the final stretch of the election. And that's just used. That's a form of, of denial. So I, I think it, it's good anecdotal at this point. You want to hear what reporters are saying, but but it it, it shouldn't drive the coverage. If it's 15,000 versus 200, then you got a real enthusiasm. All the enthusiasm about the crowd size, though, also just it makes me feel like they're running on Trump's turf, right? It's Trump that throws around crowd sizes mm. and he's the one that, he even tweeted about these crowd sizes and like, oh, they don't compare to his crowd size. And then you just he's feel like you're in the size, scrum. Sweetheart. You're in oh, the boy. scrum with everything. It's okay, I'm not gonna go there. I, I, I would just end by saying, you know, look, Washington is a state, the, the Democratic caucuses back in 2016 that Bernie won 73% to 27%. And also Elizabeth Warren's base is uh, college, those with a college degree in Washington ranks 11th in the country. You think she'd be more popular as a senator from Seattle? Should, you know no what? Question. You know, why not? Why not? Hold two jobs at once. That's the New Jersey way. <laughs> and in any event, well, let, let, let's move on. Uh, Wednesday, of course, was the final day to qualify for the upcoming September debate. And the stage is now set. So let's just go through who's qualified and then look at the state of the field overall. Who would like, John, would you like to read off? Sure, sure. I'll do a dramatic reading. And then there were 10. Joe Biden, Cory Booker, Pete Buttigieg, Julian Castro, Kamala Harris, Amy Klobuchar, Beto O'Rourke, Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Andrew Yang, and for at least one prominent night and the immediate aftermath, all other candidates will cease to exist in the public's mind. Isn't, isn't that's very sad. Now, it's, it's ridiculous. Right, but significant because Tom Steyer almost made it, just barely made it. And Tulsi almost. Gabbard didn't. Right. Almost. Also just almost made it. And so next time around, 
quite possible. I think this. I think this Steyer. We should look at Steyer because I think Steyer may make it next time. Well, he's got enough, given he's the got amount enough, of national infrastructure yeah. and resources that he's built. He's, he's got he's six got million the, people on his list, and he's got yeah, a lot of resources but, personally that he's throwing at the race. But but buying that momentum is. And I look. I, I don't know that the Democrats' experiment with setting up these standards has actually worked to their benefit. You got no governors on the stage. Um, and, you know, you, you, you've had a lot of prominent folks drop out. But, I mean, the fact that, um, you know, the, the, the Steve Bullock, for example, the governor of Montana, very popular, Western governor, isn't going to be on the stage, is bad for Democrats. It's bad for the party. Some of these candidates gotten late. That's their own responsibility. Um, and you can't have 24 people on the stage forever and ever. Uh, but, but I do think guys like Bennett and, and Bullock add a lot to the Democratic debate. And... Um, and, and I think it's it, them getting sort of missing the chance to get to the next round is bad for, for the party in the country. You know, it, it dovetails with part of the conversation you all had in your podcast last week. And you were talking about Iowa and sort of where people have pulled in Iowa previously. Historically, there were some references to even pre-Jimmy Carter days. But what the Democratic Party has done here in order to create standards for qualifying, right, this notion that you have to have 130,000 individual donations from 20 plus states Mm -hmm. requires you to be a federal candidate of some sort so you can have a national reach, you can have national lists, you can be able to, you know, you have a national profile of some sort, or you've gone way out of your way for a very long time, like Andrew Yang or Pete Buttigieg, to build a national profile and break through. That's that's the problem. And and, and if you're a governor, you just haven't done that because you've been running the business of your state. So what I think actually the Democrats have done inadvertently two things is they've actually, frankly, money matters. And Mm -hmm. even though they're trying to make money not matter and all these small donations, Mm -hmm. you have to have big donations in order to be able to buy the small donations because it costs $70 to get one small dollar donation. But then the other piece is that it's much less likely that you can have like a Jimmy Carter 1976 break out of nowhere. He was a relatively unknown candidate in Iowa come out of nowhere because you've had a preliminary primary starting now. The primaries have become nationalized. Let me just mention two quick things. Number one, I was staying up all night Tuesday night into Wednesday because I knew Steyer just needed one more poll and there were two that were going to be released. He just needed 2% in either one of them. He didn't get it, so I lost sleep over that. And I think the other thing, important point to make is that missing the debates is important, right? Because we saw recent dropouts of Washington Governor Jay Inslee, who had built his campaign around the issue of climate change. He knew he wasn't going to make the debate. And Seth Moulton, who didn't make any of the debates, And that, I think, is the important thing of why, you know, having these debates now and not reaching them could, in fact, end campaigns. I should also point out that Steyer may make a later debate because basically you can have those polls that you yep. could have used to qualify for the September in October as well. And you get more time to get an extra right. and, and look, and, 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 and there are countervailing examples. I mean, Buttigieg has defied gravity. And and he succeeded. So it, it's he just succeeded because of his extraordinary communication capacity, yeah. which frankly not not many people not have. I mean, it's quite rare. I think the lesson of this campaign cycle, as well as previous ones, is actually getting in early helps. Normally, the yep. nominee is one of the earliest again, and at least in recent cycles. Any event, we're going to take a short break. But when we come back, President Trump has a new challenger. Ooh ooh ooh! And this is this one is from the conservative side of the aisle. Ooh! It sounds really really wrong when you say it. And John's got a deep dive to look into how top Democratic contenders are performing in their own backyards. That's up next.
On Sunday, conservative radio host and former Illinois Congressman Joe Walsh announced on ABC's This Week that he will challenge President Trump for the Republican nomination in 2020. He's not the only challenger that Trump has, of course. There's also Bill Weld running in the Republican primary. This, to me, is very interesting because it seems to me that everyone in New York and Washington are like, oh, wow, a Trump primary challenge. Oh, my goodness gracious. We got him now. And I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? <laughs> this guy is going to cruise to renomination unless he literally shoots someone on Fifth Avenue. And even then, it's unclear that he wouldn't weather the storm. But but here's why it's important to Republicans, especially never Trump Republicans. The Republicans who still call call themselves Republicans and think that there has, has to be an afterlife in, in this party, an existence of the party beyond Trump. And it's that for there to be a chance of Trump not being reelected, right? Forget right. cruising to renomination, but to be damaged going into the general, he has to weather a damaging primary. And so it is a tactical political move on behalf of never Trumpers to support Joe Walsh because they want to see the president damaged in the primary and damaged going into a general election so that their very own base will stay home. But, but here, here's so the, the problem. That, that, you can say there's a problem, but that's what this is. I, that's I, why Bill Crystal's excited about it. That's why Never Trumpers are excited about it. By the way, no Never Trumpers Don't. are excited about a, a former racist challenging Donald that's Trump. That's what I'm saying. Except that it has the potential to weaken the presidency. The Joe Walsh is a ridiculous vehicle for those hopes from the Never Trump. Well, was David French a ridiculous, ridiculous yes, vehicle? Yes, he was. And I, I think he's a very and, good and writer. was Evan McMullen a ridiculous vehicle? Uh, slightly less so, but still. Look, here's the point. Bill Weld actually was a great governor, albeit in the last century. He's started to actually play a little bit of offense. You got Bill Weld. You got, you got Joe Walsh now, not of the Eagles. And you have possibly Mark Sanford. <laughs> uh, this is still the C team. What boggles my mind is you can't get a John Kasich. Or 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 a flake or someone who's a principled critic of the president from the right or a Larry Hogan who believes that the president is bad for the party, bad for the country, because even if they're not running to win and let's be clear, none of these folks are actually running to win the nomination. You're standing up for what's right and you're establishing yourself as a leader of the party going forward. The fact that so few folks have made that calculation speaks to the degree of fear which has gripped the Republican Party. Uh, you know, look, J Donald Trump has a 90 percent approval rating among Republicans at this particular point. Going against him, I think if you're even looking towards the future, is you want to be able to pull some of those voters, if say you're coming after Trump, into your own tent. I think that has a lot to do with that. that. kind of calculus is cowardice. Well, it may be cowardice, but welcome to politics. The other thing I would Thanks, point, pal. The other thing I'd point out, of course, is it's interesting to me, you know, a lot of the never Trumpers are actually more towards the center part of the party, right? Yes. We know that Trump's approval rating among moderate to liberal Republicans is somewhere between 70 to 75 percent, which makes the Walsh challenge to me so That's exactly odd right. because among conservative Republicans, his approval rating is 95 percent. The, the, I think the, this may be math that's too cute by half. But the thinking or the calculation amongst the never Trump set is, well, this is interesting because this is a person who actually supported President Trump and has come to believe that he is not up to the duty of the presidency. So it's not because of his stated beliefs that he necessarily opposes him or on the issues, but simply because he doesn't believe he has the, the wherewithal to fulfill the duties of the office. And so if you're Bill Kristol or if you're a never-Trump Republican that really doubts um, the, the constitution of, of this particular president and his capability, his ability to, to fulfill the duties of the office, somebody like Joe Walsh, who's used to support him, 
but now says this guy simply isn't up to the job is it is it is a compelling it's a compelling argument yeah i you know i think it's just interesting because i try and go back into historical and find some sort of analogy i'm not quite sure there's really a good one here right i mean you might argue in 72 when nixon was challenged by mccloskey and ashbrook but, but that was a very different Ted kennedy ridiculous. challenging jimmy carter but, was damaged a, a, yeah, a yeah, well, the, damaged an incumbent president who then had to go into a general weekend Buchanan. that is what they're looking yeah, at yeah look there's the politics of this which is that president Presidents who have a primary challenge are weak in the general. But there's also the principle of it. And for any of the candidates who were primaried in the past, whether it's Gerald Ford, whether it's George H.W. Bush, whether it's Jimmy Carter, none of them had evidenced this kind of a disregard and disrespect for the principles of their party and the office that Donald Trump has. I would certainly say Donald Trump has been a different type of Republican in many different ways. But... We have to move on and we have to go. Before we wrap up, we have to go to our final segment. John's done some extra credit work. Let's all give John a nice little round of applause. Aww. Isn't that nice? Thanks, guys. So beautiful. So, so beautiful. So creepy the way you Cra- did that. Kate would um, have a cute <laughs> clip for you. Aww. But I just know he's always working all the time. So, of course, you've done extra credit. No, no, no. So, look, this was reality check today. But but just in the spirit of the forecast and the nerd fest that this is, um, as, as the Democratic primary winnows a bit, it occurred to me that it might be worth looking at how popular the in-state candidates are at home. Um, because, you know, these folks have track records. And what's really interesting, if you dig deep into the statewide polls, and uh, a lot of the Democrats running right now, not particularly popular at home. Um, Bernie Sanders, pretty popular at home, surprisingly. Across the way, Elizabeth Warren's getting a lot of buzz nationally, but she, in a, in a, in a recent poll, was at 49% approval rating in Massachusetts, with a disapproval just behind it. In the same poll, Charlie Baker, the Republican governor of the state, had a 73% approval rating. Uh, Amy Klobuchar, 61% approval rating, very strong. Kamala Harris, 45% in California. Cory Booker, at 50% in New Jersey. Beto O'Rourke, at 44% in Texas. And and Julian Castro, almost half that at 26 percent. So what you see is actually, you know, the the only folks who are really obviously above uh, 50 percent are are, uh, Klobuchar and and Bullock, who's not even making the debate stage. There he is again, Bullock. John actually gets paid every single time he I, made, I, made I, I in Popeye's Bull- chicken, I should point I, out. I think Bullock should, d- deserves a, a, a greater look than he's been getting so far. But um, but uh, it's just really interesting to see how national enthusiasm uh, isn't necessarily translate to home state uh, uh, approval because the people who know you best probably know something about the character or how they've how they've uh, you know conducted themselves today. Be- beware the beware the the story of Al Gore, right? This losing is, Tennessee, right? losing that Tennessee, matters too, right? Obviously. So it does matter how you rank in your home state. You can't have a national nominee that doesn't win their state. Uh, I think it's particularly notable that in the few polls that have been taken in Mass- the Massachusetts primary electorate, Warren has trailed either behind Biden most of the time or Sanders in one particular poll. Harris has trailed in some California surveys. O'Rourke has trailed in a number of Texas surveys. Um, the only one who actually had a very large lead in his own state that we actually have a poll from Delaware was one poll taken in 2018 that had Biden significantly up. I would, of course, expect Sanders would also do very well in this home state, given he won, what, 85, 86 percent of the vote, whatever it was last time around. But, but that's yeah. significant because California has moved up early and yep. Kamala is Kamala Harris. Senator Harris is banking on California and her success in California. So if she's not at she's underwater, she's not at 50 percent in her home state. 
She's got to get to work. 21% of Californians said they were undecided about her job approval, and that's part of what it means to be a freshman senator to run for president. You know, and I just would point out, you know, you were talking about Klobuchar. That was one of the reasons when she got in the race, I said she had the best case to make about electability because she's been so well-received in the upper Midwest, so well-received in Minnesota. You would think that she might be able to pivot. There's something about her that would allow her to do well in Wisconsin, to do well in Michigan. But so far, So far, nope. And that, my friends. And with that. And with with that. That that does it for us. Thanks so much for listening. And a special thanks to Margaret Hoover for sitting in today. And a well done you hosting. Oh, isn't, yes, isn't that nice? She's throwing compliments my way. We'll all have that for Popeyes. If, I want emotional support chicken Popeyes from the uh, Philadelphia airport. How about both? Guys, the, are you so sure that was Chick-fil-A? No, 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 no. no, no. That, that was, no. Oh. Harry knows his Popeyes. I know my Popeyes. I know my Popeyes. Okay, I'm going I'm to go find the billboard. <laughs> if you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. While you're there, why don't you leave us a rating, five stars, always preferable, or a comment. It helps new listeners find the show. And you can always find us on Twitter. I'm, of course, at Forecaster Enton. Margaret, where can people find you in the At Margaret Hoover. And at Firing Line. At Firing Line Show. Yeah. John, where can they find at you? At John Avalon. And on New Day every morning, usually with you. Oh, isn't that nice? I'll see you tomorrow morning. <laughs> Special thanks to our production team this week, Amy Eason and Emma Soslowski. We'll see you right back here next time on the Forecast Fest. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.